We have two texts today. The first is found in Hosea chapter 6, and the second one in Romans chapter 5. Hosea chapter 6, verse number 7. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. And then in Romans chapter 5, what we've been looking at in this series, verses 17 to 19. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. We have been looking at the matter of original sin, and we've seen that we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. That is to say, the condition precedes the action. That is not to say that uh, sin is only found in our actions. This will be a bit of a review, and then we will uh, continue. As we've seen, there are at least five components to the doctrine of original sin. First of all, everyone is afflicted with original sin. And as offensive as people might find this, it in fact speaks to the equality, the egalitarian nature of the human race. We're all the same. We are all sinners. Secondly, we come into the world this way. Thirdly, we must call these propensities sinful. That is, there is a moral component to this. Fourthly, we were not originally this way. That is to say, goodness came before evil. The good God created a good creation. Um, and this is sort of important, too, because if we're not careful as we talk about original sin, we will lose sight of the fact that we are made in the image of God. There is something wonderful and beautiful about us as human beings. And number five, the only way out of the problem of original sin is through supernatural intervention, in a word, by God's grace. As we've seen oftentimes in our generation, the focus is not on original sin, but on sins. And so sermons are preached on specific sins, um, somehow losing sight of the fact that the work of Jesus Christ forgives our condition, our condition of being a sinner. We seem to focus more on the sins, that he forgives our sins, and that is true. But we lose sight of the big picture, and that is, that he saves us from sin and not simply sins. Now, what we see is that the modern world has a completely different narrative in this regard. First of all, they do not believe, the modern world does not believe that we all share the same affliction, um, which, by the way, points to the fact that in the modern world, people have to fight for equality because they don't really believe in equality. They believe that everyone has different levels uh, it is the Christian view that sees us all as sinners. Secondly, the modern world tells us that we are born into the world innocent and then we are corrupted by others. And so the campaign is to somehow weed out and root out these corrupting factors so that the next generation will remain innocent. Thirdly, morality is not involved. That is to say, if you do something wrong, it's because something has happened to you. You were born innocent. And so you can't really be held responsible or culpable for what you've done. And we spent, I think, a whole sermon looking at the whole matter of determinism, how that people believe that they are the way they are 
because of certain factors outside of their control. It's the whole nature versus nurture uh, thing that has gone on. And again, I'd, as I've said, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We are, in fact, shaped by factors outside of our control, by our family, our surroundings, our culture, our experiences, the tools, the technologies that we use, and more. But if we're not careful, in the modern narrative, morality is a non-issue because these are things that have happened to you. And who am I to say what is right and what is wrong? It seems to be a cultural construct. Number four, this is the natural state of humanity. In other words, there is no good before evil. There's just here is the way we are. And then good is something we try to create. It isn't something that was there before us. It's something that we somehow try to create or capture. And then lastly, the search is on for various ways out of these uh, afflictions that we have. Um, and again, some of these are in fact quite helpful. Um, if you have a better diet, um, if you exercise, if you take certain medications, and we pray for our brother Butch as he have to adjust his medication uh, for the blood thinner, um, we have benefited from these. We are, I'm not saying that these are not without benefit, but in fact, these do not get rid of the root problem, and that is that we are alienated from God. They help with the symptoms, whether they be physical, emotional, or mental, um, but they are not enough. I've quoted this several times from Simone Weil. Humanism was not wrong in thinking that truth, beauty, liberty, and equality are of an infinite value. It was tragically wrong in thinking that man can get them for himself without grace. Apart from grace, um, we, we lose sight of the big picture, I think. And so we go from the issue of health to salvation. That somehow, if I do a particular diet, it will in fact improve, if not rescue, my spiritual condition. Now, in the course of this series, two suggestions have made, been made to me several times after the sermons, and I will try to address them today and see them as a bridge to continuing the series, the Lord willing, next week. Um, some of this we've looked at before, not in regard to original sin, but it fits here. The first suggestion is that we go back to the beginning, that we go back to the issue of what Adam and Eve did, the story of Adam and Eve and their fall which, according to Paul, brought sin and death into the world. I think this is appropriate, because I think on some level we all may harbor doubts of the fairness of it all. Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit. The result is we are all going to die. Because of what they did, death has come on the human race. I mean, eating a piece of fruit doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, the consequences may, in fact, seem quite excessive. We are told that God planted a garden, Eden, for Adam, um, and he put him there. And God, as a parent, was watching over him and taking care of him. Eden is a place where God put him. The whole earth was not a garden. That's why man is told to go out and subdue creation. But God builds, a, he plants a special garden for that man. Adam is inexperienced. He is a fledgling. He is sheltered there in the garden, but he's not smothered. God allows him to make decisions. And on every side, various discoveries await him. There is spiritual awakening. Man is given a divine word, a command, 
You are free to eat, he is told. And then he is told, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the foundation of this is that God is the creator and man is the creature. And there was a covenant between God and Adam. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. What is a covenant? By the way, we've heard that word several times today. We've heard it as Gia read to us from Jeremiah 22 uh, in the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. What is a covenant? It is a relationship initiated and imposed by a superior with life and death consequences. So it is something that God initiates. We do not initiate a covenant with God. He does with us. Um, He is the one who is higher than us. He has the power to enforce the terms of the covenant. If we make an agreement with God, um, there's nothing that says that we can in fact force or reinforce or enforce the covenant, but God can. And so we can say of him, he is the Lord of the covenant. And in the covenant, he makes promises. He makes specific commitment to his people. And then we are to respond by obeying him. In all of the divine human covenants we find in scripture, there is a required response. We are to trust him and we are to demonstrate this by obeying him. So there's a spiritual awakening. There's also a cultural awakening. Uh, God puts Adam in a beautiful place, uh, just a vista of incredible diversity. And then there's social awakening. He's alone and then God makes Eve and suddenly he is not the only human being on the planet. There's another one and a social relationship begins to develop. Each of these are awakenings. They are just beginning. Um, They are to learn. They are to progress. They are to grow. So Adam's relationship with Eve, when God first brings Eve, it isn't instantly a perfect relationship. It might be innocent, uh, without sin, but they need to grow in their relationship, as does Adam in his relationship with God. But at the beginning, at least, in the relationship between God and Adam, it's a question or it's a statement of, do this because I say so. Uh, With children, uh, oftentimes when you try to instruct them, they want to know why. And uh, up to a certain point, explanations aren't going to do. And so it's simply because I said so. And God tells Adam, don't eat from this. And if you do, you will surely die. And if Adam were to ask why, God would say, because I said so. Well, we know the story. That in fact, Adam and Eve, who were in this wonderful place in which they could grow in their creativity, in their dreams, they could work in productive and rewarding ways. It was, it was paradise. It was the Garden of Eden. Above all, there was a covenant. There was a relationship with God. And it is this covenant that Adam broke, as we see in our text in Hosea chapter 6. He broke the covenant. I find it worth noting that Adam is only mentioned two other places in the Old Testament outside of Genesis. The first is in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. And there it has a chronology of the human race and it begins with Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. 
The second time he is mentioned is here in our text. And those of you who have an NIV, there's a note that instead of Adam, um, they have like men. Adam is seen as representing the human race. Adam is seen as a historical person. We certainly see this in Luke's genealogy of the Messiah, of Jesus, and we see it with Paul in our text. There was a man named Adam who broke a covenant with God, the consequences of which, in part, was the impartation of original sin to the human race. This is the beginning. The second suggestion was that I present a verse or verses that states specifically, pointedly, or precisely the doctrine of original sin. And I said it earlier in this series that I would submit to you that we are not to rest on one particular passage. We should not rest the matter on one passage. This truth is found throughout Scripture. As one writer, one writer put it quite well, Christian theology isn't like a Jenga game, an assemblage of propositional claims of which we try and see which can be removed without affecting the answer. Christian doctrine is more like the grammar of a story, held together by the drama of a plot. In that sense, the doctrine of original sin and the historical understanding of the fall is woven into the fabric of a story that is ultimately the drama of God's gracious interaction with humanity. So there is not, I would argue, one specific verse that says original sin. In fact, as we saw, uh, we think it's Augustine who came up with this phrase, um, But in fact, it's there. I would argue it's there on every page, the fact that we are sinners. At this point, I want to make a jump of sorts. It's not that big of a jump. From original sin to the problem of evil. They're not unconnected, but it's something we've looked at before. N.T. Wright has defined evil as the force of anti-creation and anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. That is to say, it is powerless to attack God, to somehow deface God, uh, to destroy him. So instead, it chooses to try to destroy that which is a revelation of God, those who are made in the image of God. If one cannot attack God, then one will attack his image in a human being. And when it comes to the question of evil, but I would also say original sin, we want to know why it's here in the first place, why it's allowed to continue, and how long will this go on? I think above all, we want to know why did God allow this to happen? One could make the case that the Bible doesn't really answer these questions. In fact, the Bible is not designed primarily to answer these questions or other questions. Instead, what it does is it tells us what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do about evil and about original sin. By the way, at this point, I don't know where to put it, but the first human being born into the world became a murderer. That, I think, in itself should tell us volumes about the reality of evil and original sin. Genesis chapter 12 is a critical turning point in scripture. It is the call of Abraham. It comes as the solution, as the answer to the problem. And you might wonder what the problem is. Well, there are actually three, but they all come under the heading of original sin and evil. We have human rebellion in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. We have human wickedness in Genesis 6, and therefore we have the flood. 
And then we have human arrogance in Genesis chapter 11. In this regard, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are critical. They're truly important. They help us understand why the world is the way it is. And they make up the part that many people want to jettison, and that is creation, fall, the flood, and Tower of Babel. The first story is of Adam and Eve, how they disobeyed God, how they broke the covenant. God judges this evil that they have done by kicking them out of the garden, expelling them from the garden, and imposing a series of curses. Human beings must not be allowed to eat from the tree of life. They are going to stay in the rebellious state. The ground is cursed. It will produce obstructions, thorns and thistles. But God is not finished with the human race. We are told that the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. The second story is that which leads up to the flood. In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. How did God respond? Well, on the one hand, we find judgment and he wipes out much of his creation. But on the other hand, we find an act of grace. He rescues one family from the disaster so that his creation can, in fact, continue. The third incident, the third which illustrates the problem, is the story of the Tower of Babel, in which humanity gathers at the plain of Shinar. They are going to build a city, a tower, which will represent their ambition, but they also want to build a tower that will protect them in case God ever decides to send another flood. And how does God respond? He looks down at their efforts and he confuses their language so that the human race is not able to carry out its arrogant ambitions. So God confronts Adam and Eve, he judges Noah's world, and he does something to the people at the plain of Shinar to prevent them from doing what they want to do. But on the other hand, he's doing something new. He's beginning a new project, a project which will deal with the underlying problem of the curse of original sin and of evil. That cursing will be replaced by blessing. This is what we hear in Genesis chapter 12. But before we move on, let me just ask you, what do you think of God's responses to evil in these three incidents about exiling Adam and Eve out of garden? For some people, he didn't keep his word. He said, the day you eat of that, you will die. And certainly there was death. They were separated from each other, separated within themselves, psychological death from creation. But they didn't physically die. So it seems that God didn't keep his word. And and then again, kicking him out of the garden seems a bit excessive. All they did was eat a piece of fruit. About the flood, it might seem excessive. I don't know, well, if we think about it, I don't know that we can imagine a world so wicked, and we may say that our society is wicked, but we cannot imagine one so wicked that the only possible answer is to wipe out the human race and save one family. The Tower of Babel. This judgment seems rather bizarre. God changes it so they don't understand each other and they all have different languages. And it seems somewhat paranoid. One might argue, why doesn't God simply let people do what... I mean, is he so insecure that he won't allow them to build this tower? 
I would suggest to you that we need to consider at least two things, and we've looked at this before. Consider the three approaches to evil in our time. First of all, we ignore evil. We tend to live as though it does not exist. Secondly, we are shocked when it hits us in the face, when we are confronted with evil. And then thirdly, we react and respond in immature and dangerous ways. If, in fact, we had a healthy view of evil and original sin, we would not be shocked when people do something they should not do, when they do something terrible. I I think we should be appalled at it, but we shouldn't be shocked. But if you think that people are innocent and without sin and then they do something terrible, our response, I think, will be less, or it should be more than what it should be, that we've overreacted. And as a result, we, we become convinced that God is wrong. He is wrong in how he responds to the question of evil. And we, here we go to extremes. Either we think he, he hasn't done enough. How can God allow people like that to live? And on the other hand, we're like, well, yeah, that, it wasn't that big of a deal. Why is God so worked up about it? The second thing I'd have you consider is the pain involved on God's part in three of these, these three things that we've looked at. He loses his partners in the garden. He's grieved at the wickedness of humanity. He's grieved that he has made mankind. And then we see his exasperation at the plans of those at Babel. All these God knows he will have to continue to experience as long as there are human beings on the planet. But in each of these cases, what comes with the judgment comes grace. And grace comes in chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. This is the solution, God's solution. God tells Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. But you know, if you keep reading after Genesis chapter 12, you might get a little antsy, a bit nervous. Um, because God's people, the solution, seem to be more the problem of, or the people of the problem. Um, people of the solution become people of the problem. And just look at Abraham. We don't even have to look at his descendants. Look at Abraham. He lied about Sarah being his wife, not once, but twice. And the second time, to me, is the really big the big one, because previously to that, the Lord Jesus had appeared to him with two angels and said, within a year, your wife is going to give birth. And what does he do? He allows Abimelech to take her into his harem. He lies and says, she is my sister. There is the tragic story of Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, by whom Abraham had a son, Ishmael goes on and on. And for my money, these people sound more like a problem than they do a solution. It doesn't stop. Isaac lies about Rebecca being his wife. Jacob deceives his brothers, uh, his brother Esau. Uh, Joseph's brothers sell him to slavery. On and on it goes. Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Again, to quote N.T. Wright, somehow strangely, and to us sometimes strangely, annoyingly, the Creator God will not simply abolish evil from His world. And we want to know why not. 
Why doesn't God do something about this? We're not told. We are told that God contains evil, that he restrains it, he prevents it from doing its worst. But more than that, we see that he will redeem his people from their sins. God shows this by taking Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God hears their cry. He delivers them miraculously. He takes them into the wilderness. And instead of being grateful, they begin to complain. And God tells Moses, that's it. I've had it. I'm going to wipe them out and start all over with you. Sort of like the flood, except instead of the whole human race, just the Jewish people. And Moses prays and God relents and does not do that. But what we see in the history of Israel from that time on is that evil is not an Egyptian problem alone. It is a problem with Israel. Read the rest of the Old Testament, you see this to be the case. And all of this, I say, we don't need a text or a series of texts that spell out the doctrine of original sin. We see it lived out in the lives of humanity, particularly in the lives of those called to be God's people. And we see that the only possible answer is redemption through Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament, and the New Testament as well, human responsibility for evil is quite clear. All human beings share in this problem. If we say there is no responsibility, then there is no guilt. And if there is no guilt, then there is no need for redemption. And if there is no need for redemption, then there is no problem to be solved. But we know better than that. We know better than that. And God's solution is found through his son, the Lord Jesus. I began this series by pointing out that the beginning of rationalism in the modern age was not with atheism, a denial of God, but rather the denial of original sin. It's not a rejection of a belief in God, but a rejection of the doctrine of original sin. And by the time we get to the 19th century, here we find the age of dreams of moral, of human progress, morally, spiritually, technologically. And original sin is all but wiped off the scene. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Rousseau tells us that we are born innocent into the world, and these, these things outside of us, whether it be our parents or institutions, they corrupt us. If we could get rid of these influences, then we would be better off. The church has been guilty of this as well. One of the famous revivalists of the 19th century, uh, Charles Finney, said that children were born into the world perfect, and if they ate graham crackers regularly, they would never sin. I like graham crackers as much as the next person. Um, That's not the answer. We need to remember that we have the gospel. We have the good news, which means that there is bad news. Okay? And the good news is that there is redemption through Jesus Christ. The bad news is that we are in need of redemption and there is nothing we can do to accomplish it on our own. We are lost and helpless. If you look at church history, 
there's a pattern, at least that I see, in which the church always seems to be several steps, sometimes centuries, behind the world. In the matter of original sin, several centuries after original sin was rejected by philosophers and their followers, the church, at least a part of it, followed in their steps and began to say, no, 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 we need to get rid of this, this horrible, this horrible this doctrine. And again, Charles Finney was one of the leaders of that. He was known for a number of things. One was he was a great fighter against slavery. He was an abolitionist, very strong in that regard. But he also totally rejected the doctrine of original sin. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the modern narrative regarding the human condition is quite different than the biblical narrative. But I want to sort of backtrack from that to say, in fact, we are phasing out of the modern world. In many ways, we no longer live in the modern age. We are transitioning into the postmodern world, which includes, among other things, post-human and post uh, as a post-human and transhumanist aspects. I think around 2002 is the first time we see that, that phrase, post-human. Uh, Ellen Ullman, an article in Atlantic, wrote about it. Francis Fukuyama did as well. There is a belief that, in fact, we are a product of evolution. And for years, we have thought we were the apex, that we're the highest point, and somehow that that's where it was going to end. Well, in the last 25 years or more, Scientists and others have begun to take a different view to say, um, no, we are just at this certain point and we need to keep going. We need to go beyond where we are as humans and therefore we are post-human or transhumanists. We need to go far beyond we are right now. Because of technology, we might be able to speed up the process of evolution um, and make us into better beings and perhaps those who could live forever. We can somehow download our consciousness into a computer. Why do we want to do this? Because, we are told, the human race is messed up. It's messed up. And if you listen to the stories that are being told, there is the possibility of becoming more than we are right now, more than human. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? The human race is messed up and we have stories. This is, this is ripping off scripture. Where we have the fall, we have original sin, and we have the stories that illustrate it, but above all, we have the story that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Original sin is established by the stories of rebellion, wickedness, and arrogance. Stories in which the people, the solution, become people of the problem. The human race stands in need of a redeemer. I don't know how much longer the world will last, but I can see, perhaps after I'm gone, that there will be those who say, we can fix this problem. We need to go beyond being human, which is, by the way, a rejection of being made in the image of God. And if the world continues after that, somewhere along the line, some in the church will come behind and say, yes, yes, that's true, that's true. And it was here all along. It's been here all along. Good came before evil. God made a good world. He made Adam and Eve in his image. They sinned, and now death has come on the whole human race. But God has not abandoned us. He has sent his son, and through him, we can have life once again.
Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems odd that we listen to those around us more than we listen to you. Like a child that listens more to his or her friends than they do to their parents. You've been quite clear that you made Adam and Eve good and they sinned. We still bear your image and for that we are grateful. But you have not abandoned us. You didn't simply kick Adam and Eve out of the garden and that's it. End of story. You have provided graciously redemption. You sent your son to be born and to live and die in this corrupted creation that he might redeem creation and his people as well. As we read through scripture in the coming days, as we come into the New Testament, may we have a deeper appreciation for your grace, your salvation provided through Jesus Christ. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. In a particular way, we remember the Zink family. You would comfort them and give them strength. May they have a sense of your presence with them moment by moment. For Butch and Lorna, as they go back to Guam, give them safety. Pray that you would continue to touch Butch as he recovers. Above all, our Father, we thank you for your love. Your great, great love. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.